Welcome to episode 26 of The Journey is the Reward. This is another Windows and Isles edition because I've had foot surgery and I couldn't fly for a few weeks. Also, it's Thanksgiving for us here in the U.S. and I wanted to spend some time with friends and family. The opening music is performed by the Modelizio Youth Choir. I'm Brian Coleman. I've been a frequent flyer for a large portion of my life. Most of my travels have been on United Airlines as a member of their Mileage Plus program. As a result of traveling around the world, I've flown over 5 million miles, and almost 3 million of those miles have been on United. This has earned me lifetime premium platinum status. This year, I set a new goal to fly the remaining 300,000 miles in less than 18 months. This will earn me United 1K status for the rest of my life. Along with my co-host, Micah, we will document my flying of these remaining miles. On the show, we'll talk about the passenger experience and who knows what all else. The goal is to document the journey as it is the reward. So let's get started. Hey, Micah, hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I had a terrific Thanksgiving. I started working on my Christmas story. I cooked myself a meatloaf and I came up with a brand new Brussels sprout recipe that I found that came out just wonderfully. I was impressed. I had Brussels sprouts two nights in a row. Brussels sprouts? What do you do to them different? I used a balsamic vinegar glaze. Who would have believed that this crazy guy out of New Jersey would come up one day with a balsamic vinegar glaze? But it was just delicious. But this is a more important question because I know our listeners are concerned. You had mentioned you were going to have the foot surgery. It's over now. Was the doctor able to get that foot out of your mouth? He was. It was successfully removed. And as you could tell, I could talk also. So both ends are working properly, my foot and my mouth. But he did say it's a recurring problem and it might end up back there another time, didn't he? It's entirely possible. Yep. Well, okay. Well, as long as you're all right now. Yeah. And I guess my mouth is working because your cooking's making me hungry. Well, we'll just have to cook for you the next time you get to Maine. Wait a minute. Next time. Hey, how about the first time? Yeah. Well, maybe the next time I get to Pasadena, I'll cook for you. Oh, wait. Okay. That'll be the first time too. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> so this is a Windows and Isles episode. We have a great interview coming up. Boy, I can't wait for our listeners to hear this because I just had so much fun doing it. It was really fun talking with Trisha. But first, we have listener feedback. We really enjoy hearing from our listeners. It's turning into the best part of the show. And if anyone has a question, they could send an email to brian at thejourneyistherewar.org. And we'll go ahead and either answer the question through email or put it on the show. Sometimes even both. You never know. So who did we hear from and what's their question? Well, the first bit of feedback comes from listener Uli, and she writes, Aloha, Brian. Aloha, Micah. And I know Uli's not Hawaiian, so interesting intro. Anyway. Well, that's because you go to Hawaii so often. Ah, that's it. Okay. Well, she writes, except for going to the lounge, what are your airport hacks besides bomba socks and seat hooks? Well, the seat hooks work really well with the Bomba socks. When they get really wet, you can hang them up to dry on the seat hooks. It works really well. Oh, I just hope people don't do that because I really like it when they keep their shoes and socks on on board a plane. I, it's just something I don't need to see or smell. No, that's true. But you know, when some people keep their foot in their mouth, sometimes the socks gets wet. <laughs> hey, come on. The doctor took care of that problem for me. Well, one of the hacks that I have, you know, I'm a cheapskate. Well, not really a cheapskate. I guess I'm just frugal. Maybe that means the same thing. I'm not sure. It sounds nicer. It does sound nicer. One of the things that happens when you go, once you get through TSA, actually any place in the airport, if you're going to buy water, soda, anything, it's going to cost you four or five times the price of what it would be outside. Even if you see a McDonald's at the airport, a Big Mac that might be 
I don't know, what is it now? Four, five dollars on the outside, maybe even six dollars in the airport. It's going to be eight, ten, could be even more. So I bring a water bottle with me. I like to have a water bottle that I know is not going to leak, that's going to be strong enough to be able to, to hold what I want it to hold. And I keep it empty until I go through TSA, but also it needs to be cheap enough so that if TSA, for whatever reason, decides I can't bring it through and they confiscate it, okay, it's not bad. I'm only going to be out four or five bucks. I'm not going to be out $30 on one of those fancy schmancy water bottles. But I go through TSA with an empty water bottle, and then there's usually a filling station or a water fountain on the other side, and I'll fill it up there so I don't have to buy a bottle of water for $2 where it's I took it out of the tap. Well, in the airport, it'd even be free. Yeah, certainly. With the water bottles, I have an aluminum water bottle. have never had a problem with TSA attempting to confiscate it and, of course, have to go through security with it empty. I also have another water bottle that has a UV light on it to disinfect the water. So depending on where I'm going, that really determines which water bottle I bring. And I don't use the UV light one all the time because it doesn't have a hook on it. So it doesn't fit as well in my computer bag. And, of course, the hooks that I hand out to the flight attendants without a hook, I can't hang it on my seat back. So it's just a little bit more inconvenient using the UV light one, but certainly when I'm at destinations where the water's questionable, being able to purify the water certainly makes it a lot more comfortable for me. Absolutely true. You got to be very careful and you need to be able to trust the water system if you're drinking out of the tap. Otherwise, yeah, you may have to spring for the bottled water. See what I did there? Better Ooh, be spring water. Spring water. <laughs> Yeah, one of the other things that I do is I will bring some snacks on board, and I, I believe you do too. I really try hard not to buy food at the airport. Generally, there's going to be a lounge where I go, but when there's not a lounge, bringing food on board from outside the airport is a really good way, I think, of saving some money and really getting what I what I want. And in my backpack, I always have some trail mix packed just in case if I don't want to eat the food that they have on board or get hungry at another time. Or I'll sometimes pack a sandwich that I'll take from home or pick one up at a sandwich shop on the outside, not that sandwich shop that's ubiquitous to the United States that makes the worst <laughs> sandwiches in the world. But, well, not the worst thing. Well, okay. I'll stay yeah. yeah the, no, there's, there's, there's probably worse places. Possibly. The great thing about bringing it from home is I can wrap it in aluminum foil and I can reuse the aluminum foil to make myself a hat. So that way the black helicopters don't know what I'm thinking. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Keep yourself safe. That's really good. Absolutely. One of the places that I go to in South San Francisco is a place called La Tapatia, and they have, I think, probably the world's best burritos. And they'll wrap their burritos in aluminum foil. When I go through TSA security, they usually stop me and they say, what's this item? What's in your bag? And I said, oh, it's a burrito from La Tapatia. And as soon as they say it, they go, yeah, they're really good. And then they let me go through security. So I always find that fun. You see, that's another hack. Bring a burrito from La Tapatia and you'll never have any trouble at TSA. Well, they usually say, did you bring one for me as well? They are really that good. Wow. Sounds great. Okay. On that next time, okay, on that first time I visit Pasadena, we're going to have to go to La Tapatia. No, that's in South San Francisco, so you won't be able to do it here. Okay. Well, then just next time we meet in San Francisco, it's going to have to be a very long layover. That's all there is to it. Exactly. In an hour or so, we could get it done. 
As far as other travel tips or hacks, when it comes to booking tickets, my booking engine of choice is Google Flights. I always give them a try and then I go to the various airlines and just make sure that the pricing is the same or that there's no other special deal going on. Yeah. And Google Flights will show you just about every airline except for Southwest. So if you want to fly yep. Southwest, don't use Google Flights. And a little hacking tip on Google Flights, do it from your computer. It's nowhere near as good from your iPhone or your iPad. Much, much better when you do it from a browser on your computer is what I found. Yeah, well, I think that's true for a lot of websites. I'm just not a big fan of the small screen from a phone or a tablet. If it's a pinch, you got to use what you got to use. That's true. And, you know, one of the other things that we both do is we both read a lot of travel blogs. We'll read Absolutely. Cranky, we'll read Johnny Jet, we'll read The Points Guy, all sorts of stuff. We keep up with all that. But you know what? We keep up with it so you don't have to because a lot of those opinions come out here on this show. And if you're unhappy with what we just said, you can always complain. Or if you're offended, just write to I am really offended at yahoo.com and we'll be happy to ignore you. No, we will read them and <laughs> we will get back to you. That absolutely is true. It's a monitored email address and I definitely get back to people that write there. One of the other things that I do is for booking hotel rooms. Not only will I look at travel aggregator websites, I'll go direct to the hotel itself. And sometimes, let's say if it's a multiple day stay, I will break up the search for individual days because sometimes it might not be available for the entire time or they will display the highest price for multiple days. So by looking at it on an individual basis, I oftentimes get a lower price by doing it that way. And I also look at using points for redemption of hotel stays. And sometimes the hotel, let's say if an event's going on, Friday's a really expensive day, I have to be there Wednesday through Saturday. Oftentimes I'll use points for that Friday night stay and pay cash for the other nights if it's reasonably priced. So there's a lot of little things you could do in looking for tickets or hotels in order to save some money when booking those. And it all takes time. I use the aggregators too to try to look at things. And in fact, one of my favorites used to be Kayak, but recently they've changed their uh, their website and it's nowhere near as good, at least from my perspective, as what it once was. And I'll look for different prices, but two of the things that I always make sure I do, if I'm booking from one of those aggregators or I see a price on one of those aggregators, I make sure that I'm being taken to that hotel's website because I will not, or that hotel brand's website, I will not book a hotel from one of those aggregators because then you're paying them. And if you have any problems, there's nothing you can do with the actual hotel. The hotel is not necessarily going to take responsibility. Whereas when you're dealing directly with the hotel, they're going to take responsibility for it. And what you said about sometimes seeing a price change in the middle of your stay, I'll also sometimes try to call the hotel directly, speak with the hotel manager and say, look, I'm staying three days before the price change. I'm staying two days after the price change. Can you give me a deal? And oftentimes they will. Sometimes they won't, but it doesn't hurt to ask. Yeah, it's true. One of the things I forgot about with the aggregator sites for hotels is oftentimes you lose the benefit of the frequent guest program by booking through an aggregator. So if accumulating points, if the having the possibility of a free upgrade, of having access to the executive lounge is important to you, oftentimes it's better to do that through the hotel's website directly. And that's the same thing with Google Flights. Sometimes you'll see Google Flights, and when you go to book the flight, they'll be taking you to an off-site, a non-airline affiliated site to book it through. I won't do that. I will only book directly with the airline. I've actually never come across that. Yeah, it's happened to me when I was looking at flights to Israel, and I told you about that great deal I found on Turkish Airlines. 
I got the price on Turkish Airlines, but when I clicked book now, I could see the Turkish Airlines price. There was a cheaper price from some kind of organization or group or oh, website okay. that I never heard of. Right. I never use that. I will only book directly from the airline and preferably the airline that I'm flying. British Air, for example, code shares with American. You can often book the ticket on either American or British Air. But if I know I'm on a British Air flight, I'm booking that ticket with British Air. If it's an American flight, I'm going to book that ticket on American. But I'm not going to book a British Air flight through the American website because oftentimes if you run into problems, there are issues in trying in terms of getting refunds and the British and British Air won't be able to help you with the issue if you're at a counter. So always book directly with the airline that you're flying. Yeah, that's definitely true. I've run into that in the past as well. Very rarely is it an issue, but when it's an issue, yeah, it's an issue. So good point. But you know, Uli asked about just airport hacks. This was much more than airport hacks. We must have heard from somebody else. Who else wrote into us? Well, we heard from my mom. And my mom wants to know why I talk about her so much. And she also said that you are welcome in Florida anytime you want to go to Florida and visit with mom. Wow, that's incredible. That means not only do I have an aunt in Florida, I also have a new mom in Florida because we're practically brothers. That's incredible. Yeah, so mom really wants to see you. I think she was more excited about the offer of seeing you than she's been of making me an offer to see me. Well, thank you, Mama Coleman. I'm <laughs> honored. That's great. Yeah, and I really talk about mom so much on the show because, well, if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be here. And if it wasn't for her financial support in doing this project, I'm not sure that I'd be doing it as well. My mom said that she had the opportunity to give me the money when she passed away, or she could give me the money now and actually watch me spend it and enjoy it. And I think that it's so much better of an idea to spend it while she can see it and know that it's going towards something that we're both so fond of, which is travel and seeing the world. I cannot thank her enough for what she's done. Well, there's even more than that that you mentioned before, because you said that your mom was a travel agent. She still is a travel agent. Wait, hold on. She used to own a travel agency and she was a travel agent at the agency. She still works for a travel agency today. And is still booking flights for people. Yeah. And she really specializes in cruises, but yeah, she still does the full service travel agent bit. That's incredible. Now, there's something else, because you may have mentioned this before too. When you were a kid, didn't you write a poem <laughs> about your mom? I did in the Asbury Park Press, which is kind of the big newspaper in New Jersey. I wrote a poem when I was five years old and it got published and it goes something like, my mother is the best mother in the entire world because I've never had another mother. Wow. <laughs> That's wonderful. That poem not only spent some time on the refrigerator, but actually in our washroom where the washing machine was, it hung up above the washing machine well until I was in high school. So that was just hysterical to me to see it in the washroom for all those years. That's just wonderful. But, you know, being that your mom's specialty in cruises, we should probably cruise along. Ooh, so it's time to get to the next segment, which is Listener Lou Wants to Know. And Listener Lou this time actually sent in an audio recording. Oh, well, let's listen to it. Hi, Brian and Micah. This is Listener Lou here, your social media director. I'm a born and raised Jersey girl. And yes, I'm highly offended that you keep being a hater of Newark Liberty Airport. That happens to be my home airport, and you're just getting the Jersey attitude. Brian, have you been in California that long that you've forgotten that Jersey is the home of The Boss, Pork Roll, Turnpikes, Sopranos, Big Hair, and Big Attitude? Yes, customer service is one thing, but if you're landing in Newark Liberty, be prepared for the Jersey-tude. We get it here, too. And so you're not that special. 
Thanks for listening to my rant and have a great day. Listener Lou, I just want you to know, it's really the lack of customer service that I really have an issue with. I also want to correct you. I am special. Just ask my mom. She'll verify that. Several of the things you forgot about New Jersey, you forgot that we have the best beach boardwalks in the entire world, and we also have the best live music that is played at beach bars. So yeah, there's definitely a lot going for New Jersey. Again, I don't have an issue with the New Jersey attitude or the dude, as you call it. I just have a problem with the lack of customer service that all the folks at Newark Airport give. That's very true because Newark Airport is truly known as some of the worst customer service of any airport in the country. And in fact, recently got rated the worst airport in the country. But, you know, there is an entire attitude from New Jersey. And as I said, I've got a song for everything. There's a friend of mine. His name is John Gorka, very well-known singer-songwriter. And, well, he has a song about New Jersey and it's titled, well, here it is. I'm from New Jersey. I don't expect too much If the world ended today I would adjust So yes, if the world ended today, we would adjust. (laughs) Such a fun tune. Well, you know what? I think that listener Lou is probably from South Jersey. You know why? She said pork roll. And you know what we call it up in North Jersey? That's Taylor Ham. And I will tell you that... Due to my my good friend and Kreplak brother, Eric, he brought me four packages of Taylor ham oh, that are really? in my freezer. Yes, because oh. I love to have it with eggs. It makes a great omelet. It's also, I'm also known to make a Jersey burger. What's a Jersey burger? Well, it's a cheeseburger with Taylor ham on rye bread. At least that's my Jersey burger. My version is you have a hard roll, or as other people call it, a Kaiser roll. You have a fairly thick slice of pork roll. So yes, I'm from Southern New Jersey as well. A Kraft American single that you take out of the plastic wrap. And then you fry an egg and have that on top of the cheese. So you have the pork roll, cheese, and egg sandwich. And that is so good. And I haven't had one in such a long time. Now I'm really hungry. Well, when I used to go to Seaside Heights, we'd go down for a pork roll sandwich or a Taylor ham sandwich, which was just the ham, the Taylor ham, which, by the way, is not ham at all. No, but it's a cured meat, but (laughs) it's not even close to ham. (laughs) Yeah. But and and cheese on that uh, hard roll. And they call it a hard roll in New Jersey, not because as opposed to a Kaiser roll, because Kaiser rolls tend to be kind of soft and doughy and a hard roll has a crust on it and it goes crunch when you bite into it. But yeah, it's 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 all about the water, I believe. Exactly. And a Taylor ham sandwich for breakfast, that's what you're talking about. You can go to any diner and it's great. Sliced incredibly thin, multiple slices of it with a fried egg on top of it and a cheese. Oh, gosh. Anyway. And my mother raised three boys. Maybe she just did a thick slice just to save on the labor and getting it done that way. I don't know. Could be. Could be. <laughs> well, there was just an article published that said Newark Airport is the worst in the country, although they have redone Terminal A. And I haven't been through Terminal A yet, so I'm looking forward to that. I've seen some pictures. There have been some online reviews of it. And it looks like they did a really good job with that. But Newark, as far as the airport goes, oh gosh, the rest of it, not so good. The attitude, you can still have New Jersey attitude and provide good customer service. And I think that's more what we're talking about is the lack of customer service of the ground staff. It's just awful. 
So, yeah, I think New Jersey, the workers at Newark Airport really need to have their attitude adjusted. Again, I could take New Jersey attitude. I could give New Jersey attitude. That's not a problem, but it's the customer service that we're talking about. Okay, so let's move on to the interview that we have with Trisha, and we get to, well, my intro pretty much sums it up, I think. The thing that people should be paying attention to, but don't. Mike and I are here with Trisha Ferguson of the Interaction Group, and we're going to be discussing one of the items on the plane that people should read, but probably don't. And that's the safety card. But wait, Brian, because if people are reading it, that Trisha hasn't done her job right. But but we'll get into that later. <laughs> that's so true. Trisha, welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. It's it's great to be here. People see these safety cards all the time, oftentimes just ignoring them. But there is so much more to them than just this piece of cardboard or laminated cardboard. What got you involved in the idea of becoming the company that makes safety cards? Yeah, great question. Well, first of all, I'm the CEO of the Interaction Group, which is the leading global designer and creator of airline safety cards. The company has actually been in existence since the late 60s. It incorporated in 1971, and that was before I was born, truth be told. For me personally, I started working for the company. I was a freshman in college and just trying to pay for the last few meals to eat while I was <laughs> scraping my way through school. And I got a job as the office manager and I was here for about three months and I absolutely fell in love with aviation. I'm sure you guys can relate. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I fell in love with aviation. I fell in love with doing business all over the world. And we have been doing business all over the world since our existence. And fell in love with airplanes and the community and the details and fell in love with the product, which is meant to save lives. So that's the short answer to how I came to be with the company. Safety cards fascinate me. I mean, I always look at them because, you know, I'm out of my mind and I'm an aviation nut, but I'm also counting rows to exit. Art. You know, when you look at a safety card and suppose you're flying just a 737 and you're on a 737 from one airline, you look at the safety card and then you go to another airline, you're flying that same aircraft, the exact same type. It's a different safety card. Who decides what graphics go on a safety card? What must be on there? Is it, is it the airline? Is it the aircraft manufacturer? Is the FAA involved? What standards do you have to meet? Yeah, it's really a combination of multiple people and groups and organizations. It takes teamwork to really create a safety card that is effective and clear. Certainly, you can be flying a 737 even within the same carrier. We partner with American Airlines, and you can be flying on one of their 737s and get on another 737 on your second leg of your trip and have very different content because there might be different vests and rafts and locations and things. So there's so many details that go into it. The contributing organizations and groups are the airlines themselves, the regulatory organizations in which the aircraft is certified. So like say in the US, that would be the Federal Aviation Administration, Canada, Transport Canada, and on and on to where the aircraft is flying and where they're certified. There are very specific things that have to go on a safety card. And then there's also recommendations from us. Again, we consider ourselves experts in 
what we do. The company is the originator. The Interaction Group is actually the original company to create illustrated safety cards back in the late 60s. So we did that as a result of the incident and accident surviving rates back in those days is really what pushed the original owner and founder of the company to start this. He was working at Douglas Aircraft at the time. But the organizations that go into contributing to the content are regulatory agencies, the carriers themselves, and then we as experts in the field make recommendations. What a lot of people don't realize is a safety card on passenger airliners are a must-have item. If there's not a safety card in every seat, that plane can't take off. Correct. Yep. But again, typically no one pays attention to them, or or at least I don't see people opening them up. You know, what's really interesting is that there's been really ebbs and flows to the attention paid to safety cards over the years, right? And even to the passenger safety briefings, we also were the first company to do the first ever passenger safety briefing video back in the 70s. And, you know, it goes through ebbs and flows. I will say that, you know, when you get on the airplane and you sit down in your seat and you begin conversation with the people next to you, inevitably somebody says, well, what do you do for a living? And when I tell them what I do for a living, of course, the first thing they do is grab the safety card and (laughs) tell me how they always read it. You know, uh-huh. that's two hours into the flight. But it is such important information and it is really important to pay attention and listen and really consume the information that you need in order to be aware of your surroundings should you need it. It's that situational awareness, right? It's the, you know, which is the ability to identify, process, and comprehend critical information ideally prior to an incident and an accident. Well, they also have to be of a certain size, don't they? They have to stick up above, uh, they have to be completely visible, meaning you, I guess you have to design the size or the height of the card based on individual seat pockets. Correct. You have to be able to visually see the type of aircraft and then it's a passenger safety briefing cards. It has to be in front of, you know, any other materials that are in the seat pack pocket itself. Yes. Determining the size of the card, for example, with the 787, there's the dash 8, 9, and 10. Yes. So who determines if there's going to be a separate card for each of those aircraft? Is that the carrier itself? Is that the FAA or the governing body? Is it you guys? Who determines which card's going to be in which aircraft? That's really determined most often by regulatory requirements. There's so many details in each particular aircraft that oftentimes you have to have different cards for the same aircraft type. But there's many scenarios where you can keep one card across your specific fleet of your aircraft. If you are, say, like Southwest probably is a carrier that has the least amount of variance because they fly 737s. And then, you know, some of our partners who are large, large carriers have 20, 30, 40 different versions of cards. And it comes down to the regulatory requirements most often. I still think with Southwest, you say they only fly 737s, but they fly the 700. 800. They have maxes now in various variants of the maxes. So they have quite a few different aircraft. 
They do, but they, but they have the same exits, right? So when you're talking about how many different cards that you carry, if you are a carrier who sticks to one life jacket type and one raft type and one floor proximity lighting type, and your aircraft are all configured similarly or as similar as they can be, you can reduce the amount of versions you need in your fleet. So okay. unlike companies like United and American and some of those who have many different aircraft types. It seems like they can also become souvenirs for passengers as well. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting anecdote. There is a huge, huge, as you all are aware, I'm sure, a group of aviation memorabilia collectors and safety cards are a hot commodity. We get emails every single day. They want the Shah of Iran card from the late 70s, or do we have any samples of those still in our warehouse, which we do. Or they're saying, hey, I was on this flight or I'm starting a collection. And so the, it's it's huge. It's it's fun for me, obviously, because I'm passionate about safety cards to talk with some people who are also passionate about it, but difficult to manage. I actually am speaking at, in 2023, one of the largest international aviation memorabilia collectors. So I'm living my, my high school prom queen dreams and hoping to be, <laughs> hoping I'll get a tiara or something. <laughs> Made out of aviation cards. And we'll see. I'll, I'll make one for myself. But it'll be fun because it's, you know, they're passionate about what we're passionate about. And I appreciate it. So now most people think of safety cards and they think of commercial aircraft. Mm -hmm. But are you making them for other industries as well or trains and buses and other forms of transportation? Great question. We do provide um, aviation safety cards for airlines and carriers and aircraft of all types, right? From Piper aircraft to A380s. We've done thousands and thousands of privately owned aircraft and charter carriers in addition to commercial carriers. We do sometimes uh, also put safety cards on cargo aircraft if the carrier is having passengers or employees on board. So there is some need. They are depending on the size of the carrier and the passenger to crew ratio, there are different variables that go into what is required as far as content and information. So the content varies some. We also have partnered with numerous different industries in that what we title critical information design, right? Taking really complex concepts and paring them down into simple instructions. And we've done that with some high-level security firms for high-rises, for biomedical companies who are looking to communicate effectively. We've done it for Burlington Northern, some of the rail. We've done it for some maritime and also from inner city transit, whether that be rail, bus, or light rail, things like that. So we've done it for numerous different agencies. So are these placards that you're developing or are you doing cards as well? It's a combination of both. Okay. Yeah. Or it's manuals or it's a safety manuals for companies and security firms to sort through. One of your clients is American Airlines. And I guess their latest aircraft or one of the latest is a 787, which is a reasonably new airplane. Mm -hmm. So when a new airplane comes out like a 787 and you are creating the safety card for it, how do you go about doing it? What do you look at? Do you work with the manufacturer? Are you working with the airline? What's happening with the FAA? What's the process? 
process of coming up with a new card for a new aircraft? We do both, actually. And uh, we will work with the manufacturer on some of the specific operations, say door operations and anything that might be a little bit different. And we work with the carrier themselves and we determine with them what type of equipment is on board. But truthfully, because we've been doing this for so long for so many carriers, for so many different aircraft type, very seldomly do we have to really go back to the drawing board per se and illustrate a brand new door operation unless it's a new manufacturer. Most manufacturers use very similar door operations that they've had on previous aircrafts. The 787 has a very familiar door for Boeing. And so it was a pretty streamlined process. How we will create a new card is that we will send the carrier a list of questions that help us determine what type of equipment is on board. We create the safety card that we start drawing a custom design uh, using artwork that we've already had tested. We do comprehension testing here at the interaction group. And we kind of start piecing together a custom design for their particular aircraft. So with new aircraft, if it's something we haven't done before, which happens very seldomly, but when it does, we'll work with the manufacturer. Speaking of getting back to the drawing board, I'm assuming some of these graphics need to be updated from time to time. Some of the things that I've seen over the years is inclusion of different people, different skin color, different dress. How does that factor into making of these safety cards? I'll speak from our standards and our policies and procedures. Our standards is that when a passenger gets on board, they have the opportunity to see someone who looks like them. And we have determined um, through some human factors testing with some different groups that if people see themselves in the illustrations that they're observing, they actually take more time to consume the information. Mm -hmm. So we will think about the average passenger on board that aircraft in that region and custom design and lay out different dress or hairstyles, color diversity for that particular carrier. We also have standards here at the interaction group to make sure that our diversity standards are met, and that is in age and size and race and sex. And so we have those standards here that we are constantly fighting to meet our customers' requests and also to exceed our policy and procedure here. So I guess the cards would change or be different from you know American Airlines to Egypt Air to Ethiopian, and yes. and, and 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 it means. A lot of different kinds of publishing, but why not, for example, just like use stick figures? So we have discovered again that um, if people can relate themselves in what they're observing, they consume, they take more time to consume the information. We also believe that an illustration of the human body is much more effective than um, stick figures are because sometimes you lose motion with stick figures right? Or you lose the location and position of the hand, whether it's under, uh, you know, it's, it is pulling from underneath or it is tugging from above all of those little nuances that are really important that might not seem like it, but it a matter of seconds could be a matter of lives. It really fascinates me how you put this all together. I said, if people are reading it, then you're not doing your job because there's really very few words, if any, Correct. that I can remember on, on, on the card that also frustrates me personally 
generally. It has nothing to do with most people. I do much better from text than from illustrations. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there are people like that as well. So you have to take all those things into consideration. You know, when I'm looking at an instruction manual to put something together, if it's illustrations, it's like I have to look it up online and find the step-by-step, word-by-word thing to do. You don't really have time to do that on an airplane. So how do you take those things into consideration when you're making a card for, for people that are better with text than are better with, with pictures? So that's the one of the main reasons why the company was founded on the on the uh, value system that we were founded on because briefing cards back in the 60s and prior to that were mostly text and the comprehension rates and the consuming of the information was actually very very low because you have a broad spectrum and still the case there are certain left brain right brains that that consume information differently but when we're thinking about the largest selection of passengers in America the average individual reads at a 5th to 6th grade reading level and to communicate such difficult concepts accurately at that kind of reading level is very, very difficult. So that's one of the reasons why we made that change early on. And we still, to this day, try and avoid having as much text as possible because you also run into things like language barriers and there's different cultures and different languages that read right to left versus left to right. Arabic languages, some of them do, and, and Asian languages. And so you have to take into account getting information across to everyone with also keeping the card as simple as possible. Because the busier the card is, the less we take the time to consume it because it seems overwhelming. What about for people that are not sighted? Do you make cards in Braille? We do. In the uh, 1980s, early 80s, we did a huge study with the National School of the Blind and worked in partnership with 100 blind individuals ranging in age from five years old to 85-ish years old. And we created Braille cards that there are a couple of different versions. And there's some countries that require Braille cards on board. Canada does, for example. The U.S. does not yet, but there are some on board. So we create Braille cards and we also create uh, cards for the sight impaired passengers. So somebody who may not be completely blind, but just has visual issues. So then are those cards that the flight attendants would have stored in their locker to hand out on an individual basis? Basis. Yes. Uh, carriers, most often, depending on which region you are in, will actually give blind passengers a personal briefing when they are on board. Oh, they okay. can supplement that personal briefing with the safety card. And the safety card is Braille, is mainly text, of course, but there's also a tactile map. You know, it's difficult to understand the concept we discovered through testing years ago of what an airplane looks like and a cabin looks like if you are blind. And so to provide them a tactile map that gives them locations of exits and orientation for them is an amazing thing. It reminds me of the old phrase, have you seen the elephant, which is talking about people who have been in battle and they describe it as seeing an elephant, because if you've never seen an elephant or if you're a blind person, you could not possibly understand what what it might be without having seen it, just like battle. And it's the same thing, trying to describe an airplane. Yes. If you've never seen one, how do you explain it to someone who's never? Yeah, we take it for granted. Let me ask you a really geeky question. Ooh, uh, I'm excited. But but it's 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 not it's not airplane geeky. It's oh, okay. it, it's it's printing geeky. Yay! What kind of printing stock do you use? I mean, the cards have to survive folding and bending yeah. and wetness and maybe chewing and teething and I mean, yes. what kind of things do you take into consideration? How do you find a printer to do it and what is it printed on? 
Well, I will say we have yet to find material that withstands bubble gum. That's uh, that's a complaint we get sometimes <laughs> from carriers. The stocks vary slightly. We almost all of the cards start with some form of a card stock, right? So the 12 point weight, which is kind of that thicker paper. Some carriers do laminate their cards and some of them fold. Some of them are flat. Some of them are single fold, trifold. It just depends on, again, how much information is needed. But we most often start with a 12 point cover weight stock paper. In the company itself, did I read that you actually own or have purchased purchased a print company. So you have a printer where you physically print the cards themselves. And then what printer do you use? Yes. When I took over ownership in 2002, we were strictly just a design company and we were outsourcing all of the printing. But of course, this is a regulated item. And so there's need to have on-time delivery. There's need to be quick. There's need to turn effectively. And so I, at the same time, bought a bunch of printing equipment and picked up some amazing people that were in a local college that were trade professionals in the print industry. And we started doing all of that in-house. And so we've had different equipment over the last 20 years of my ownership. We've had a Heidelberg QMDI. We've had um, Heidelberg web presses. We do a ton of work on Kanaka Minolta Digital these days, which is totally, I mean, the printing industry has changed rapidly in the last 20, mm -hmm. 25 years. So four color process, offset, digital, we've got a few different types of machines and, and bindery equipment like cutters and folders and laminators. And it's loud there. I know that. Do you ever enable people to go on a tour? We have. And I'm asking selfishly at this yes. point, because if I'm ever in Washington, I'd love to stop by and see the facility. Yes, we have. And um, most often people look at everything and then they say, okay, just show me where the, the droves and droves and droves of archives are so I can look through all the cards and, you know, the original hand illustrations of the very first hand or the very first illustrated, you know, seat belt illustration ever to exist is out in our warehouse. And it's, it's an interesting place. Yeah. Yeah. You could definitely create a museum out of that. I'm certain. Well, yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. If it wasn't an idea, I just gave you one. No. We've, we've thought about it before. Again, we love, we love people who are passionate about what we're passionate about. It just amazes me. I have a friend that does some printing and I'm surprised you're not like on a thick Tyvek or something like that, that you can't tear, you can't pull apart. I mean, is, is it a cost issue when it comes to things like that? So we have used and do currently use for some of our clients a synthetic that is an anti-tear, anti-rip. The usage rate on those is actually substantially higher than it is on laminated cards. So ultimately, most carriers make the decision to laminate to keep the cards on board longer. But we do offer that. It is a really beautiful stock. It's also really clumsy in printing. So there's a lot of waste and a lot of overs. And so there's, you know, an additional cost. And I can't remember what airline it was that I was flying on, but instead of having a safety card, yeah. They actually had the safety information printed and it was adhered to the tray table. And I thought that that was a really good idea because it's right there in your face. And yeah, there's a combination, right? And there's different reasons why carriers would want to do that and why they wouldn't want to do that, right? Maybe from a not making a passenger nervous at the same time, you know, having it right in front of you is really
really effective. It was probably a Ryanair or a Valeris something. I was thinking it was a Velo maybe, but no? I don't know. I, I Yeah, I can't remember who it was. I just remember it was really interesting to see that. A Velo has some beautiful cards on board their aircraft. <laughs> hmm, I think they might be a customer. They might. They think they <laughs> Pretty much all of the startups in the U.S. have beautiful cards on their aircraft. How often do they generally need to be replaced? Do you know? Have you done studies on that? Yeah, here's a geeky statistic for you. You ready? The average usage rate of a laminated safety card is 0.75 cards per seat per month. If it's not laminated, it's about 1.5 cards per seat per month. But the usage rates really vary, right? It depends on if you are carrying a lot of business travelers who have less tendency to fiddle with safety cards or take them as souvenirs or uh, less likely to maybe be traveling with children who might spend some time with them. Or if you have a lot of holiday vacation travelers, those tend to disappear more than business travelers. And on private aircraft, it's a different statistic of usage rate. It's very low. I can just see you talking to the executive at the airlines that's doing the cost-benefit analysis based on whether it's going to be laminated or not laminated, giving them that statistics and working that all out. It's got to be just crazy. Do they change from laminated to not laminated at different times of the year, perhaps, when they're replacing them based on, you know, the travelers going to Florida for Christmas or whatever? They don't. For cohesiveness and for branding and standard within a carrier, they usually, I'd say almost always, 99% of the time, make the decision to do it one way or the other. How often are they replaced from where, or do you know how often they're replaced from where versus being stolen or taken as a souvenir? That's a statistic that's really difficult for us to determine. And, you know, we're always working really hard to make sure that it fits in that seat pocket um, so that it's not, you know, damaged by the tray table or, you know, so there's in that space. So the damage isn't an issue, but that's a statistic that's really difficult for us to really determine. Do you have to update them once once you've created a card for an aircraft? Do you have to update and change that card for that same aircraft? Or is it going to be the same until that aircraft is retired? We do update them and we update them for a variety of reasons, right? A regulatory requirement might come out. For example, you know, there was an, a recommended practice that came out from the FAA about a brace position. And there was a big study done with CAMI and the FAA, and they determined that the brace position should change slightly. And so uh, the airlines over the last few years um, have been updating that across the board. So we have to make changes to all of the briefing cards. Or the carrier could decide they want to go with a different manufacturer or they want to update their logo or they're going to invest in a different type of seat. And so we have to change the size because there's different pocketing. You know, there's a a variable of reasons, but they're most often once you get a card approved by the regulatory the government agency, you do your best to not change it unless you need to. So as our listeners know, we always try to find industry leaders when we're talking about a subject and and you guys are the best at what you do, but what makes you the best? What makes us the best is really our investment in the passenger sitting in the seat. We care about their safety. And truthfully, the most educated person, the in-flight departments, the airline personnel, us here at the interaction group, we are the least qualified to tell you if that safety card makes sense. 
right? We're the least qualified because we have the most information. So 50 plus years ago, the company set a standard that we would test every single sequence and every single illustration that we do when it first comes about for comprehension. And so we still, to this day, even when I took over ownership of the company in 2002 and became the CEO, we kept that standard. So all of our artwork is tested by a third-party organization. It's not tested by employees of the company. And we go through rigorous testing to make sure that it is understood. And if it is not understood by 90%, and the reason it's 90% is because that is the standard for human factors, understandability testing. If it's not understood by 90%, we re-illustrate it and retest it. And so we are deeply invested in the individual sitting in the seat and their ability to understand and get the information they need should they need it. So do you do focus groups for that? And if so, can you sign me up? Because I certainly am opinionated over stuff. You are opinionated, but you fly <laughs> so often, you may not be our target audience either, right? <laughs> Um, I don't know. I sort of have mental issues, so I, I just, I just might be. <laughs> I, I can attest to his mental issues. We do focus groups when we're in the process, right? Where it's really collaborative and we're having conversations with different people. And then we actually send it out to a company that is not related to us at all because we want accumulation. We don't want anybody to feel like they have to tell us what we want to hear, et cetera, et cetera. You know, without giving away anything proprietary, if you can answer this question, what kind of testing are you doing? We talk about focus groups, but but what are you doing? How do you test for something like that? And what is your target audience? Yeah, our standard is really diversity of age, sex, and flying experience. And we test at least 50 individuals on each sequence by itself and also the card as a whole. And so we have a formula of questions that we go through. It's kind of like a, a funnel form of testing. And we have a, a list of questions that go into each sequence. And, and the questions may vary depending on the content that we are testing. Do you have an aircraft mock-up that you put the passengers through as well to make sure that they can follow that flow and sequence and evacuate safely? Yeah, we have in the past and we've partnered with and been a part of many, many manufacturing manufacturing evacuation testing, right? As, as is well known, they have to be able to evacuate the aircraft within 90 seconds of a full flight of people in 90 seconds in order to get it certified. And we have partnered in that regard. We also have partnered with different manufacturers, life jackets, life rafts, things like that to certify their equipment. And so we have at times put a mock-up in our warehouse facility that also houses our complete uh, commercial printing aspect of the business and put people through it. But it's actually better if we test individuals because when you get on board an aircraft and you, let's say, you know, I flew last week and I was in seat 10, you know, seat 10 is, be, is between exits. So when you're consuming the information, you don't have access to a visual or a tactile opportunity to touch it. And so we really are testing people who have very little knowledge or experience with the equipment because that's the reality. What about disabled people? I mean, people with missing limbs or mobility issues, people in wheelchairs or people have to use walkers. How are they accommodated in this? 
You know, that really is more of a cabin crew opportunity for them to give them individual briefings and or resources. There are not um, safety cards that are specific to people with disabilities, although we do have safety cards that depict people with disabilities on them. Yeah, because I don't think I've seen one. And Hmm. I don't know, I sort of feel as though today we've evolved enough where we should. Yeah, I'll send you one. Along those same lines, you've been the CEO of the Interaction Group since 2002, did you say? Correct. I was very young. <laughs> so you must have started there when really when you were 10 years old, but, but that's, <laughs> that's another story. But, you know, the, the aviation world and you're working in the aviation world, it's been an old boys network for years and years and years and really only recently has kind of changed. And I guess what's it like being a female CEO in a world like this? You've got to be some issues that you've encountered. And is there anything you can tell us about that? I appreciate the question so much because it has been difficult at times, especially when I was not just a female, but I was young. And so there was a constant, I don't know, fighting is the right word, but there was a a constant kind of navigating of garnering respect and also being seen as a partner versus maybe being someone who was uh, not educated or not experienced or looked differently than most people in the space. Early on in my career was almost always, if not always, the only female in the room. And whether that was visiting with clients and carriers or whether that was in SAE, uh, NBAA, um, Flight Safety Foundation, all of those groups that we have partnered with and been involved with. Early on, it was very difficult to feel so lonely in the space and having to navigate that dynamic. And and surely I did run into issues. I have been really blessed to be able to see kind of things change a bit. In fact, I had a meeting about three years ago with Spirit Airlines. We were down in Florida and we were working through a project with them. And it hit me in that moment that here's five individuals in a room working on this project and we were all women. And it was one of those moments. It was amazing. And I have have had amazing mentorships from men in the industry and amazing partnerships. So this is not a, a negative on one way. It was just, I wanted to acknowledge the positive change. And I just stopped the meeting and I said, can we just acknowledge this for a minute and just celebrate the hard work? I have a huge heart for women leaders and women CEOs as a whole, and especially in the aviation industry. And I'm hoping to connect with some groups that are making a difference. And I see a bunch of them are, which is amazing. It's got to be difficult. I can't imagine what it would, what it's been like for you over these past 20 years. It's been unique and that's the best way to say it, but you know, I wouldn't change it for the world. Again, I've had some amazing mentors and amazing partners in this journey of mine. And I am thrilled to see that there is not just more diversity between male and female, but more diversity of all types coming to the industry. And it is spectacular to watch it happen. And I can't wait for what the industry looks like in 20, 30, 40 years. And you said before about the diversity on the safety cards, where people, when they see themselves on a card, they could relate better to it. There might be a mother or father with a small child, and they can listen to the show and the parents say to their little girl, see, you can do this. This career opportunity does exist. And fine, she might not go into the field of aviation, yet she knows that she could be a CEO someplace else. And I think that's just really great. It's so important. And I really, really struggled early on to find 
when I was creating the company board, when I took over ownership, it was impossible for me to find a female CEO that would partner with us because there were so few and those that were, were so busy. And so mm-hmm. I'm just grateful again to see the change and I wouldn't change it because I love, love, love this industry and I love what we do and it makes a difference. And I love our partners and the carriers. So I wouldn't change it. That's great. I don't know if it's a okay to say, but I'll say that being a lady in the aviation industry made me a pretty tough chick in life. So Tricia, thank you so much for joining us on The Journey is the Reward. It's been a fabulous journey here with you, learning all about how really complex something you take for granted is. I'm so grateful that our journeys came together, meeting you all and having this fun adventure this morning. And thank you for being an aviation enthusiast. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about our great company, The Interaction Group. That was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed talking to Trisha, and I hope our listeners could tell because I think we had a really good time with her. And you know what? I think she enjoyed talking to us too. Yeah. And safety cards, they are the document that everyone should be paying attention to and reading on the plane or at least looking at the pictures, but don't. And again, remember, if you're reading them, Trisha hasn't done her job right. Yes. So true. So we're coming to the end of the show. People want to support us after hearing all this, well, whatever it was. How could they do that? Great podcast content. What are you talking about? People can certainly go to their podcast player of choice and leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. So if you enjoy the show, give us a five-star review. And if you didn't enjoy the show, if we've offended you and we certainly do our best, you can always write into I am really offended at yahoo.com. Yeah. And who knows, maybe there might be a few other New Jerseyites out there that we rub the wrong way with our comments about New Jersey. And let's not get into the Taylor Ham pork roll argument. It all depends on where you live. (laughs) So true. Now, there are other ways to support us too. And what are those ways? Well, they could go to the website, thejourneyisthereward.org, click on the donate tab and make a contribution to help offset some of the costs of us doing the show. That's greatly appreciated. There are other ways people can support the show and, and ways to be able to travel with you. Yes, I'm offering personal courier services. So if anyone needs pets, people, or property transported around the world, I'm quite happy to do that. And of course, that's legal stuff. That's true. Yes, I refuse to do anything that will get me in trouble because I enjoy flying and I want to be able to do it again. And Brian loves to fly so much. And if you love to fly, you can come fly with him. How do you do that? Yeah, there are actually two people that have signed up. And my next trip is going to be with Scott. And we're going to fly into South Africa and go up to Zambia. So looking forward to that. And then in February, I'm doing a trip with Linda. And again, we're going back to Africa and we're going to go on a safari in Kruger National Park. So really looking forward to that as well. And the way people can get on one of these trips with me is send an email to brian at thejourneyisthereward.org. Now, we also have social media and listener Lou, who is very upset with us about the way we treat New Jersey, but I think for good reason. (laughs) Yeah, listener Lou does our social media. And you can find us on social media on Twitter, at least so far, at TJIT Reward. That's the journey is the reward, TJIT Reward. On Instagram, it's Brian Global Traveler. And on Facebook, it's at Brian, the journey is reward. And let me just let listeners know that if I said things wrong in terms of how to contact people on Instagram or Facebook, I have never been on either. I really am not such a social media person, or I always say that I'm antisocial. And that's the reason why Listener Lou is doing all the social media for us. So I really, really thank Listener Lou for all the time and dedication that she's put into doing this. 
But I am on Twitter, and if you want to catch me on Twitter, you can always catch me at MainFly, M-A-I-N-E-F-L-Y, Main like the state, F-L-Y, at MainFly on Twitter for as long as Twitter is still there. Yeah. Oh, boy, Elon, how you have, how you have, yeah, how you have Twitter, <laughs> how, how you have Twittered. <laughs> And you can always write to us via email at brian at thejourneyisreward.org. That's the way to get a hold of me, us. So do we have a mileage update since your trip to Singapore? Is it definite yet? All the segments come through? Yeah, all the miles have come through. I now have 2,887,503 miles, which means I have 112,487 miles to go. Wow. How many segments have you flown so far this year? So far, I have flown 68 segments. Holy ravioli. This is probably the most segments I've flown in my entire flying career. So it's definitely been a fun year. And I have four more segments to go, or at least I have four segments that are booked. Who knows if I'll add another trip between now and the end of the year. I'm going to try not to because it is the holiday season and I want to stay at home and be with friends and family. But yeah, we'll finish up with 72 segments. And you'll have all of next year on Flighty with any luck, so you can see how it goes for you. Yeah, it's a really nice program, and the free application works great. We don't receive any compensation from T-Mobile or Flighty or any of the people that we talk about here on the show. This is just our open, honest opinion of it, and Ryan's done a great job with Flighty, so definitely appreciate that technology and being able to use it. And the reason Brian mentioned T-Mobile is just wait for an upcoming show and you'll find out. Oops, I might have let the cat out of the bag. A spoiler. It's okay, I like cats. <laughs> so from Portland, Maine, this is your main man, Micah. And this is your global traveler, Brian. Fly safely. You know what they say. The 12th time is a charm? No, they say, and we're back. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. It was so funny. I thought I actually did a really good job doing the intro, and then all of a sudden it's not recorded. So great. Get to do it all over again. All right. <laughs> we, of course, really enjoy listening from our... We, of course, really... In, uh, I need to do this without laughing. <sighs> that was a transition I wasn't expecting. <laughs> Hi, Trisha. How are you? Real good. And yourself? I'm good. Thank you so much for agreeing to do the show. Really appreciate oh, I'm it. Thrilled! I listen to you guys often, so this is a thrill <laughs> for me. Oh, we're very sorry and apologize. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Apology accepted, but unwarranted. Now you know we both have faces for radio or podcasts and not ah. um, television. So yeah. that's yeah, that's the reason why we're doing this. Yes, yeah, something like that. And I cut all the crap. Is that your title? I cut all the crap. Yeah, actually, it should be. Yeah, usually it's Schlepper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I, yeah, so I think, yeah, cutting all the crap is. Um, yeah, he's a Schlepper and I'm the Fetcher. So it works out really well. <laughs> <laughs>